I think when Deutsche Bank records are going to show and his income taxes, that the Russians own him and to have a president who's owned by the Russians. That was Tennessee Democratic Congressman Steve Cohen speaking on last week's skullduggery about what he views as the corrupt relationship that is at the root of the Trump-Russia scandal. Cohen, of course, is an unabashed advocate of impeachment, a position that gained new traction this week after special counsel Robert Mueller spoke for the first time, explaining why he couldn't clear President Trump of obstruction of justice charges in the Russia affair, and, as many saw it, all but invited the Democratic House to begin impeachment proceedings. But what exactly would the House impeach Trump for? Over his firing of FBI Director James Comey and his stumbling efforts to get rid of Mueller and shut down his investigation and then lying about it? Or, as Cohen and many other House leaders fervently believe, is there evidence of something darker and arguably much more serious, a secret financial tie between Trump and Russia related to the president's massive loans from Deutsche Bank, an institution that has been fined in recent years for laundering billions of dollars in illicit Russian capital? We'll talk to one of the world's experts on Trump's finances and his curious relationship with Deutsche Bank and examine exactly what the evidence is and isn't on the claim that, as Cohen put it, Trump is owned by the Russians. And we'll meet a rather unorthodox former CIA spy turned podcaster. All that and more on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, as Trump put it in his uh, latest tweet storm, Russia, Russia, Russia. It never stops. And, um, of course, uh, Trump saw Mueller's eyebrow-raising statement as uh, case closed. It's time to move on. The Democrats in the House heard something very different from Mueller this week. Yeah, Mueller remains Sphinx-like and a kind of a Rorschach's test uh, for people. If you are bullish on impeaching the current president of the United States, then there were major revelations, not necessarily in what Mueller said, because he was essentially echoing what was in his report. I but think he in, was just repeating the words <laughs> from his repeating report. Repeating it, yeah. yeah. But in right. how he said it and the yeah. fact that he said it. Look, I, I think that there was a a little bit of kind of almost hysteria about uh, the Mueller statement. I don't think it was his intention. This is my own personal belief. Uh, mm-hmm. that Mueller remains a black box, and I have not been talking to people um, close to Mueller. But I just don't think that this was, as many people suggested after the statement, a an impeachment referral. I think there are a couple of things here. One, he was closing up shop. This was the last opportunity for him to speak publicly as the special counsel. Two, you know, I think he's been criticized uh, by some, including on this uh, podcast, for the for punting um, for, on, for, for on punting whether on, or not he believed or he found that Trump committed obstruction of justice. And I think I think he wanted to. And my guess is. 
a lot of the lawyers in his office wanted him to, on their behalf, explain uh, that decision and the kind of fine legal points about that to justify it. So, you know, I think it had as much to do with with those things as trying to send some smoke signal to uh, Nancy Pelosi that she ought to pursue impeachment. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, you know, what Mueller said could be viewed as a setback for the impeachment forces because, number one, he made it clear he doesn't want to testify before the House. The report is my testimony. (laughs) And if they force him, all he's going to do is repeat what is in the report. He will not opine. He will not give insider views of the debates within the office. He will simply stick to the language in the report. And the other point that he made, which didn't get as much attention in the news coverage, is he took no shots at Bill Barr, who everybody was saying had somehow you know, misrepresented his report, or there was even uh, suggestions that Barr had forced him to shut down the investigation prematurely. If anything, he said he respects Bill Barr, and that yes, they had a brief disagreement about what should have been released, but made the point that Barr did release most of the report. And that he doesn't question Barr's good faith. I will point out that as far as I'm aware, there may be other stories out there, but Yahoo News was Mm -hmm. one of the only, if not the only uh, outlet that actually did a story on that very point. That being said, you know, there is damning evidence in that report on the obstruction, particularly the dealings with Don McGahn and um, uh, and Corey Lewandowski as well, uh, and evidence that Trump was trying to shut down the Russia investigation. And as Mueller also made clear, there were valid reasons to be doing that investigation. There were potential co-conspirators. They wanted uh, to keep the evidence and they, fresh. They, and he he needed the evidence as part of the investigation, and Trump did what he could to sabotage it. Although at the end of the day, they did turn over documents and they did let people but like look, McGahn testify. I think this goes back to a point that you and I have, have made on this podcast, you know, multiple times, uh, which is that if the Congress had not outsourced this investigation entirely to Bob Mueller, uh, they wouldn't be in a position where they felt so dependent on mm-hmm. Bob Mueller to make uh, their case. And you know, if you think about congressional investigations historically, the really big ones. You know, it it wasn't Leon Jaworski and Watergate or Archibald Cox who came up to the Congress and made, you know, major revelations. It was the Congress itself. It was the investigating committees themselves that turned up the smoking gun evidence in in Watergate. So, So in a way, yeah, it's a setback for Congress not to, if Mueller in the end does not come up and testify not to have him, but maybe it ought to spur them to do more investigating and see what they can come up with. Well, they are, and they are focusing the House Intelligence Committee, the Financial Affairs Committee, on Trump's finances, and in particular, the relationship with Deutsche Bank. As uh, we pointed out, uh, there are many, like Steve Cohen and many others, who think that is the key to unlocking the relationship between Trump and Russia. So we've got just the guest to talk about it, David Enrich, who's the finance editor of the New York Times and knows more about the Trump-Deutsche Bank relationship than anybody. So let's Let's get right to it. (laughs) 
We are now joined by David Enrich, the finance editor for the New York One Times, only. and uh, probably uh, the premier expert on uh, Trump's finances and his ties to Deutsche Bank. Uh, David, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. So you have done a lot of phenomenal reporting on an issue that has a lot of people keenly interested when it comes to Donald Trump's finances. But there was a story you did just a week or so ago that got a lot of attention, and that is that Deutsche Bank staff in Florida had identified transactions that they thought were evidence of suspicious transactions that should be reported to the Treasury Department, and Deutsche Bank refused to do that. Tell us about that and uh, what we should make of what you reported. Well, what happened is that every time a big transaction goes through the systems of Deutsche Bank, a computer system looks at it to check for signs of suspicious stuff, whether it's being all cash or being very large or going to someone or coming from someone who has previously raised flags in the system. And so a number of transactions with both the Kushner companies and with Trump's various Trump entities, including his foundation, in 2016 and 2017 were triggered the system and went to human beings for review. And the human beings investigated the transactions, looked into them looked into the size, where they were going, things like that, and concluded that these were suspicious. It does not mean they were criminal. It did not mean it was money laundering or tax evasion or anything like that, but regarded them as potentially troubling. And what you're supposed to do in that situation, and I know you're going to ask me, you're going to ask me, well, what does that mean? And I'm... Well, actually, I was going to ask you what was suspicious about them. Right. There's, And the bottom line is I don't really know. There's, I have not been told. There's... And that's a question I'm still trying to answer, and I'm dying to know. Uh, Any indication at all that, well, the, that the origin of this money is is foreign, say, Russian? So in the Kushner Company's transactions, it's actually almost the opposite of that, which is that money was going from the Kushner Companies to Russian individuals. And so I don't know who those Russian individuals are. What I do know is that the employee who saw these transactions, her name is Tammy McFadden, and she went on the record with me. She had been fired by the bank, and she Why? was- Why? Well, it depends whom you ask. If you ask the bank, it's because she had performance problems. If you ask Tammy, who I trust, and I don't think there's anything to gain by being deceptive in this situation, it's that she she did have performance problems, but those performance problems started because the bank started cutting off the number of transactions she could review right after she started complaining about these transactions and raising concerns about the way the bank was handling money laundering concerns in general and the Trump and Kushner accounts in particular. In the matter of Kushner, didn't the Kushner companies do business with, I think it's Africa Israel yeah. Limited, which is owned by Lev Leviev, who yeah. is a Israeli-Russian right. oligarch or so billionaire? The, what Tammy told me is that yeah. it was not that. This was not so the, that transaction was in 2015, and then in 2016, just a month or so before the election, Deutsche Bank did a big refinancing with Kushner Companies on that project, which was the old New York Times building, actually. And the Kushner Companies booked a huge profit on it, basically out of thin air. And that basically, ever since it happened on the eve of the 2016 election, there's been lots of you know, there's lots of smoke around it. It's weird that they made so much money so quickly. It's weird that Deutsche Bank of all banks was the one that refinanced this in a very lucrative manner. Tammy McFadden tells me it's not the Lev Leviev or Leviev uh, mm -hmm. transactions that were what cauterized. It's another individual or individuals, plural. But it's money going from the Kushner companies 
to a Russian to individual Russian individuals for a repayment of a loan, we, for a purchase of property, for You're what? asking all the right questions, well, so, and I don't know the answer. So, David, okay. let's step back a little bit, because there is there's a lot of sort of suspicion about Deutsche Bank and its uh, relationship with Donald Trump. There is some smoke, a fair amount of smoke maybe, but there are also multiple kind of strands of suspicion. And so uh, before we kind of delve into them, why don't you just kind of walk us through what those different, you know, sort of strands of suspicion are. Well, yeah, and I think the starting point is really that this is Deutsche Bank for the past 20 years has been the only mainstream financial institution willing to consistently do business with Donald Trump. They've Donald Trump had a long, well-documented pattern of defaulting and stiffing his lenders, and Deutsche Bank went where no other mainstream bank would go, which was into bed with Donald Trump. And over the 20 that 20-year period, it lent more than 2 and a half billion dollars to Trump and his companies. And at the time, How much? two and a half two billion, and a half billion. billion with a B, right. so a big number. And at the time that he was sworn in as president, Trump currently owed Deutsche Bank well over three hundred million dollars. So Deutsche Bank was by far his largest creditor, and for Deutsche Bank, he was one of their largest customers. So this is a long-standing relationship that, on its face, is unusual because this is a guy that, even before he had any political aspirations, was someone that was not—he was untouchable by normal banks. And Deutsche Bank was had a much greater tolerance for risk and much weaker systems to prevent itself from stumbling into messes than many of its peers. And, and that very uh, dynamic that you talked about being the, you know, Wall Street bankers considered Donald Trump a deadbeat, so they wouldn't yes. lend him money. Deutsche Bank was the only one, as you said. That's fueled a lot of the suspicion. But in your reporting, you have not uncovered some you know, deep, dark conspiracy. You, you you think it has more to do with disorganization at the bank, recklessness, greed? Well, the bank is objectively an institution that has been extremely reckless, extremely greedy, at times criminally so. It's a bank that has been in trouble criminally from manipulating markets, violating international sanctions, and laundering money. And the launder money laundering that they have been kind of most egregious with is laundering money for Russians, and in particular, Russian oligarchs, and in some cases, people very close to Vladimir Putin. And so- How did that work? How did they launder money for these Russian oligarchs? I think that it was up to $10 billion, according to some reports. Well, I think it was actually a, a lot more than that. There more was, than there 10 billion. Well, there were, right. As if 10 billion isn't enough. Uh, <laughs> yeah. there, there were different money laundering schemes that were going on in kind of overlapping time periods, which, by the way, are the exact same time period in which the bank did its latest batch of like several hundred million dollars of loans to Trump. So, which is again a source of a lot of smoke if not fire. The money laundering worked like this. They would if you're a Russian and you want to get your money out of Russia for whatever reason, maybe because you made the money in through some illicit means or maybe because you just don't trust Putin to not take it so from it, you. So, it's not by definition ill-gotten gains because it could be you could be trying to avoid taxes, but you also could be, as you just said, yeah, trying to... The, the reason that people were trying to whisk money out of Russia in a secretive way through Deutsche Bank is because, presumably, they have some reason for doing it secretly. Right. Right? There's... And we also know that the people, some of the people who were doing this, and frankly, some of the... Most of the people, I think, who have made very large sums of money very quickly in the past 20 years in Russia are people who did so through what we in the West would consider to be kleptocracy. There's, it's not, this is right. not a country that capitalism works in the way that we think 
we're, we're accustomed to. It's not right. there's so back to how it worked. Yeah. So uh, if you know, you're, I'm a Russian oligarch who's made billions uh, because of all sorts of sleazy dealings, and I've got this pile of cash. I go to Deutsche Bank and do what exactly? So the transactions are called mirror trades, and they work yep. like this: You're a Russian. You've got let's say a billion dollars of billion dollars worth of rubles. You want to have a billion dollars. So the bank does a transaction through between its Moscow branch, its London branch, and its New York branch that takes your rubles and invests in, say, IBM stock, or a stock of a blue chip company, just random company. Separately, a legal entity that you have in somewhere like Cyprus, for example, does you put a bunch of money in that account, and it does the exact opposite transaction. So let's say you're buying IBM shares. This one sells IBM shares. The money goes from being in rubles in this one account to being in dollars. So you're basically liquidating a stake. It all goes through New York. And so the money that you're getting out of the transaction by, by selling the IBM shares is turns into dollars through Deutsche Bank's New York offices. That's a very imprecise and kind of superficial explanation for this. It's complicated, but it's... And this is one of the kind of money laundering devices they have. There are others as well. But you know why this has gotten so much attention. We have, on the one hand, the Moscow office of Deutsche Bank doing all this illicit money laundering for Russian oligarchs. And then at the same time, you have the same bank, it's an international institution, out of its New York offices, lending hundreds of millions of dollars right. and billions to Donald Trump. And there are a lot of people who are convinced there is a connection, that somehow Deutsche Bank is the key to unlocking the illicit corrupt relationship between Donald Trump and the Russians. But if I've read your stories closely and what you've said, have you found any evidence of that at all, of a connection between the Russian money laundering and the loans to Donald Trump? No. Is the short answer. Now, can I just say, I want to, because that strikes me as a major piece of news that I have not, if I've read it in the New York Times, it's in the bottom of very long stories, never emphasized, never put front and center, which I think is kind of important because this is what the congressional Democrats are all worked up about. They've subpoenaed Deutsche Bank. They're convinced that it's going to unlock the riddle between Trump and Russia. And you're telling me you've looked at this in depth and you found nothing. I found a lot of smoke. I have not found any fire. And But look, there's, I mean, first of all, you're right. I have not found the fire. I wish if there is a smoking gun, I, I wish that I would have found it. I frankly think, based on the amount of research and reporting I've done, talking to dozens and dozens of people who worked on this relationship over the past 20 years, to a person, every one of them has told me it is complete and utter nonsense that there's any Russia connection to any of these Donald Trump So do you think there is? I don't know is the bottom line. And for two reasons. One is that I unfortunately do not possess subpoena power. And look, the people I've been talking to, I think based on my information, I do not believe that they are lying to me, but is it possible they're lying? Yes. Is it possible they don't know? Yes. Is it possible that there are documents inside of Deutsche Bank or people, if told that they need to testify under oath, would tell a different story than what they told me? Is that possible? Yes. There's. I would feel a lot more confident in the accuracy and precision of my answer if I had subpoena power, which unfortunately I don't have. That's thing one. Thing two is that if you had asked me a month ago or three weeks ago, is there any, what's the likelihood of there being a Deutsche Bank nexus between Donald Trump and Russia? I would have put it at maybe 15 percent. 
I now put it at about 30 or 35 percent. And the hmm. reason is that okay. a month ago, I had never heard of Tammy McFadden. Right. And she, through a network of sources, I found her about a month ago. And she had a story to tell that matched with a number of other stories I'd heard in Jacksonville, Florida, where Deutsche Bank has most of its anti-money laundering operations, where a number of people I talked to said that they had seen very fishy stuff happening with Deutsche Bank moving money for Russians and, separately, very fishy stuff happening with Deutsche Bank dealing with Donald Trump. And these are people in the same offices. And then McFadden comes out and says on the record that she saw suspicious transactions moving from Kushner companies to Russians, and that when she told the bank about it and tried to send an alert to the government to warn them about these transactions in the heat of the presidential campaign, she was rebuffed and then ultimately retaliated against. That, I mean, that, that is a, not a good set of facts for Deutsche Bank or, frankly, right. for the Trump and Kushner families. And does that prove that Deutsche Bank is the nexus for this? No, it does not. Does it increase, in my opinion, the likelihood that there is some more to be seen there? Yes, it does. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that struck me about the story uh, about the suspicious transactions is she said that she saw them in 2016. Now, that's while Donald Trump is running for president, um, which would seem to fall within the orbit of what Robert Mueller was investigating. Do we know if Mueller looked at the Deutsche Bank transactions as part of his investigation? My understanding is he did look at some Deutsche Bank transactions involving Paul Manafort. To my knowledge, he never subpoenaed Deutsche Bank for Trump's records. And to my knowledge, he never dug into Trump's personal finances at all. I might be wrong about that because Mueller obviously has been very tight-lipped about this. But based on what I've heard from the bank and people around the bank and past and present employees of the bank, they never received any requests for information at any time from Mueller about Trump or Kushner. But but now uh, two committees of Congress have subpoenaed Deutsche Bank uh, records, the Intelligence Committee, House Intelligence Committee, and I think uh, Financial Services, Services, right? Adam Schiff, who chairs the House Intelligence Committee, has been very interested in this connection between, alleged connection between uh, the Russians, Deutsche Bank, and, and Trump. I think I read in one of your stories, or maybe in an interview you did, that Deutsche Bank has been, at this point, they're really cooperating yeah. uh, with the committees. They want to turn things over, so so much so that they actually helped the committees craft these subpoenas. Yeah, that's right. Are, and are any of those subpoenas specifically uh, related to this question of uh, laundering money from the Russians? Yes, they are. They're, I mean, you can see the subpoenas. They're public. They were released in a court filing uh, two weeks ago, actually. And so they're seeking a lot of things. They're seeking everything that they have. It's basically everything that Deutsche Bank has on Trump. And so, in, and then it lays out in quite a bit of specifics. They want suspicious activity reports, if any. They want correspondence about suspicious activity reports. They'll cover the stuff in my recent article about Tammy McFadden. They want anything involving any money laundering concerns whatsoever. They want stuff on transactions outside of the United States. The list goes on and on and on in, in quite a bit of detail. But look, I mean, they, these guys are. These investigations on Capitol Hill are being run by very serious people. They're former federal prosecutors who have specialized in anti-money laundering cases in the past. So, And they have subpoena power. Now, whether the bank can actually comply with those subpoenas is a separate well, question. Well, first of all, um, if these documents are turned over, then uh, it should be able to answer this question that we're asking here. And it's that, certainly the best. It will represent the best shot of anyone being able to answer the question. And, of course, that will depend on whether uh, the courts um, – 
The Trump family has uh, sued to block these subpoenas, but already one federal court has ruled against uh, the Trump family. So we'll we'll see what happens. And the congressional committees, for whatever it's worth, they're biased on this, obviously. But you talk to people there, and they're quite optimistic that they're going to prevail in this, in the relatively near future, in fact, get their hands on not only all this Deutsche Bank stuff, but also things like Trump's tax returns. Well, I was going to say, I mean, you, you refer to Deutsche Bank as the Rosetta Stone of of Donald Trump's finances. And this relationship goes back 20 years or more. Very intricate, elaborate. They've got Actually, I, I don't understand how uh, a bank has would have all of his tax returns. As far as I know, my bank doesn't have my tax returns. How does that work? Have you borrowed $300 million from your bank? <laughs> I guess that's due diligence. It, it's what passes for due diligence at Deutsche Bank. Yeah. I mean, this is, it, it, to be fair, Deutsche Bank in the past seven or eight years, in the last spurt of loans they did, so this is for the Doral Golf Course in Miami, it's for the old post office building in Washington, it's for some stuff related to the Chicago Tower, it's for, he thought about buying the Buffalo Bills at one point, it's for all that stuff. They actually did do a fair amount of due diligence, I think. And they got Trump to agree to fully guarantee personally these loans. So if he were to default on them, which is obviously a pattern with Trump, that they, the bank would have full recourse to his personal assets, whether it's cash in his bank accounts or just anything else. They're so, going to seize Mar-a-Lago or cash in his bank accounts while he's president of the United States? Well, I mean, that's the choice that they could be faced with if he defaults, is either do that, which is ugly, or don't do that, which is essentially cutting a huge, enormous financial gift to the president, which has its own set of problems. So Donald Trump has how much in outstanding loans from Deutsche Bank? Well, we don't know that answer with precision. What we know is that he entered office with about $350 million of outstanding loans. What we don't know, if if he has continued to pay those off, as he's supposed to, by now that number is considerably less because, you know, three years have passed or two and a half years have passed. There's well, But we don't like we just don't know. We don't know what the state of those loans is. And I think that's one of many things that these congressional subpoenas could answer. Who is Rosemary Vrablick? Rosemary Vrablick is Trump's private banker and Kushner's private banker at Deutsche Bank. This is and private bankers. I didn't really know what private bankers were until relatively recently. Yeah. Th- these are bankers that cater to the whims of the elite. So if you're a billionaire, you have a private banker who hand- manages your money, gets you loans, kind of helps you av- avoid taxes to the extent allowed under the law gets you hard to get concert tickets or restaurant <laughs> reservations, things like that. Hey, You've got a private bank, Arisikov, yeah, don't you? Yeah, uh, it's you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, and I'll pay you back the, with the money I owe you for the Super Bowl bet. But, yeah, okay. Uh, right, um, eventually. Vrablick is yeah. regarded widely as one of the best private bankers in New York, if not in the United States. So she has a roster of extremely wealthy, extremely loyal clients, and that came to include Trump in the around 2011. Okay, so she is the key person who approves these loans for Donald Trump when nobody else would. She's well, the one who initiates the loans and pitches the loans internally, and then gets approved up this food chain at Deutsche Bank. And so why does Deutsche Bank keep lending money to Donald Trump when he has this clear history of being a deadbeat who doesn't pay off his loans? Because Deutsche Bank is greedy. And they wanted to make as much money as they could as quickly as possible. And they, time and time again, over the past 20 years, decided that the expedient thing to do in the moment was to make 
loans to Donald Trump. And it seems illogical because he keeps defaulting, aren't you going to lose money? But they, each division of the bank at one point or another, structured the loans in a way that they thought at the time would, they were managing risks. And this latest batch of loans from Rosemary Vrablic, to our knowledge, the loans have not defaulted. So they financially seem sound. What she and the bank failed utterly to take into account was the reputational risk associated with lending money to someone who was at the time even engaged in very polarizing activity and racial demagoguery and now is the most powerful and probably most controversial person all, in the world. Has all this controversy, all these investigations affected their business? It's hard to say because their business is in a tailspin anyway, and their stock price is at its all-time low. The bank is losing clients in, in droves because of its, in part because of its precarious financial situation. I've t- I've heard from some clients though that they are. This makes Deutsche Bank a less attractive place to keep their money and to do business with. So the story uh, that you've written about that I love the most is about in 2008 the financial crash and Trump uh, can't pay off his loans to Deutsche Bank. They're coming after him for his money and he sues them, <laughs> saying, alleging that because they helped cause the financial crisis in the first place, he shouldn't have to pay back the loan. Yeah, you said he that he can't repay the loans. I, I, would, I think the better verb is won't. Yeah. Uh, I don't think uh, he, at the very time that he was claiming he could not repay these loans, was bragging in the media about all the money he had, all the cash he had on hand. So he made a choice. Well, I that don't he, know what that tells us other than he was bragging to the media, which is what he well, does all the time. Fair enough. Right. Yeah, he chose to not repay his loans in 2008. And the, and the escape hatch that his lawyers found was that in his contracts with Deutsche Bank, there's what's called a force majeure provision, which means act of God. And so if there's an unanticipatable event, like a natural disaster, that can give you a way out of repaying your loan at that time. And this was in the middle of the financial crisis. And Alan Greenspan had actually just said publicly a few days before that the crisis was a credit tsunami. And his lawyers look at each other and, well, what's a tsunami if not a natural disaster? <laughs> it's Trump- not a literal tsunami. <laughs> <laughs> Trump- yeah, this is creative That's the Deutsche Bank defense, but yeah. I, I, well, I love the, uh, the lawsuit Trump, to begin and with. Trump here. hears this and yeah. is just a high-fiving his lawyers, basically. Yeah. And, yeah, so they file a lawsuit against Deutsche Bank, invalidating the lawsuit, in, invalidating the loan, seeking to invalidate the loan on the grounds that the financial crisis is an act of God blaming Deutsche Bank for having caused the financial crisis. Well, wait a second. There's a contradiction there, because how could it be an act of God if it was caused by Deutsche Bank? I think you're thinking about these things in maybe too precise a manner to to allow you to understand the Trump thing. But the the best part of this is that he also accuses the bank, as part of this lawsuit, of engaging in predatory lending against him and claims he seeks – $3 Three billion dollars in damages from the bank because he hasn't repaid his loan. That is chutzpah. It is chutzpah. That's so right. So bottom line. Well, wait, how did that resolve itself? Uh, it's the uh, litigation drags on for a couple of years, and in 2010 it settles. Trump needs to come up with tens of millions of dollars to repay what he still owes Deutsche Bank, and lo and behold, he turns to Rosemary Vrablic, who he's just meeting at the time, and gets her or her part of the bank to loan him about 50 million dollars 
to repay the money that he owed another part of Deutsche Bank. Okay, so bottom line before we let you go, David, what is the real threat you think that do you think that uh, Deutsche Bank poses to Donald Trump? We know that Trump has said that investigating his finances would be crossing a red line. He hasn't turned over his tax returns. He's now suing to stop Deutsche Bank from turning over these records. What do you think he is worried about? Where does he have the most exposure in terms of what Deutsche Bank knows? The short answer is everywhere. And also, I don't know, because I don't know. Trump has spent an enormous amount of time, energy, and money over the past several several years trying to keep his personal finances and corporate finances secret. And he's done a very good job of that for the most part. We don't know how much he was paying or not paying in taxes. We don't know the sources of most of his income. We don't know who his business partners were for the most part. And those answers are all hiding in an electronic vault a couple of miles south of here right now. Literally, that's where they are? Well, I don't know. Certainly, they were at 60 Wall Street, which is where Deutsche Bank's headquarters are. I guess now they're probably technically in a cloud somewhere. But the, the answers to this are definitely in Deutsche Bank's possession. Deutsche Bank has compiled these documents and is ready to hand them over as soon as the court says that it can. You are writing a book on uh, Deutsche Bank and its relationship with Donald Trump, which will be out soon. Ah, soonish, kind of. At the latest, February of 2020. What's the working title? Dark Towers. Okay. All right. So we, we expect uh, you to penetrate that cloud and <laughs> yeah, uh, unload I, all those documents that have been locked up for from your all these mouth many years. to Deutsche Bank's ears. <laughs> okay. Deutsche Bank's and we will ears. have you back on when the book comes out. Uh, thanks so much, David. Thanks for having me. And now for a special treat for the Skullduggery audience, we have as our guest Emily Brandwin, a.k.a. CIA spy girl. Emily, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. It's a lot of pressure if you say it's a very special one. I have a lot of... really be good. That's the whole point here. I know. If I'm not, on I'll leave. The spot. Now, look, I wanted to have you on because I think yes. you have the most interesting resume <laughs> that I've encountered <laughs> in quite some time. Tell me if I get this right. Yes. You were a CIA mask maker. No. <laughs> You're wrong. <laughs> Excuse me. Seriously, you're already wrong. Did you, you make masks for the no, CIA? No, I didn't. Costumes? First of all, you're, made, you're belittling and saying costumes. It's not like what? I worked at Spencer's Gifts, for Christ's sakes. All right, well, what I worked did you in do? the disguise department. That was, okay, you so made there's disguises. There you go. That's different including than masks. That's different. Disguises could be anything. Do you mean seriously? Do you want me to break it down? Not yet. Okay. I just wanted to get I your resume. To, okay, but, but you're wrong already. All right. So a CIA disguise maker. Officer. I stand corrected. Turned CIA spy. Operations officer. Turned comedian. I was a comedian before and after. Turned podcaster. Perfect. <laughs> All right. I got most of it right. Um, so, like, what's the point here? Of, what do you mean? Well, this I'm trying to, like, uh, understand the resume okay. and how you went from, sure. you know, one thing to another. So just take us through it. So I will break it down. So originally I graduated with a theater degree because I thought I was going to be an actor. Mm-hmm. And I did what everybody with a theater degree does. I moved back home with my parents because that's what you do. <laughs> yeah. And I was doing improv comedy in college and then I lived in St. Louis so there wasn't a lot of improv groups. I joined the only professional improv group. I think my parents were a little disappointed A, because I was living at home. But B, they were coming to see all my shows and there was like two good clubs and the rest were really sketchy and I would tell my parents hey you want to see me perform you're going to see a strip club 
I'm not performing in the strip club, but you have to go through the strip club and go to the right through a door, and I'm performing there. <laughs> or I'd say, hey, I'm performing at How the How many same. people made it all the way to your performance? There wasn't a lot. I, it, but yeah. I performed at a comedy club. You yeah. would sometimes have good nights, but sometimes you get the coveted Wednesday mm-hmm. 1030 slot, which just meant it was just drunk old men who would heckle you. And I was the only girl in my improv group for a long time, so I would get the brunt of heckling. Right. And in improv... It's all heckling because you're always saying, hey, I need a funny occupation or I need a funny this. And all the time, the guys, you'd say, I need a really funny occupation. And they would just yell, penis. And you're like, okay, sir, that's not an occupation. And you would have to go through that, like, variations on that over and over again. And my parents, I think, had seen that show over and over. And one day I woke up. This is the long way to get to the story. But yeah. there's a good, it's a good finish. So I woke up, and there was a paper that slid under my door. And I read it. And it said, looking for adventure, want to see the world. And I thought, oh, shit. So I said, oh, my God, my parents want me to join the army, which was frightening because I wore an eye patch for many years for a lazy eye that shifted. And I was also in a class that you could never call it now, but it was literally called Special Gym. It was for basically little girls who couldn't throw balls against walls. And they took me out of math class because they were worried about my motor skills, which they should be. So I thought, I'm going to fail out of the military. But I kept reading, and it was actually for the CIA, which makes sense because my mom was a huge, huge, huge CIA spy nut, which is not typical for Jewish mothers, but she (laughs) is weird and a little crazy. And so she always wanted to be a spy. Right. So she so she encouraged you. She encouraged to me and join the CIA. She did, and she also said if I applied, I could live at home rent free. So I did that because I just wanted to live at home rent free. But also, she harbored secret desires to be a spy, and I think she. Well, I know she did because she said she goes, "If you get in, you'll tell them about me, and we can be a mother daughter <laughs> spy duo." Now, there's nothing subtle about my mom, if you haven't gotten that already. So it would But there's already a movie right there. It, right? it would it'd be right. a really annoying movie because my mom would just be complaining and bitching oh. at me. But all right. yes. So what it, all right, so you go to So I go the there. CIA. Um, I had right. no idea what the job was. You go through this whole long process because it's a CIA, so it's about a year and a half, maybe a little less than that. And even towards the end I kept saying, Can you tell me what the job is? And they said, you know, we where, can't where, tell where, you. Was this where in, was this? In, in Langley. In Langley. Langley. Okay. So, so I was in St. Louis, okay. and they would call you, right. and a woman with one name, saying, we're going to fly you up for a polygraph. We're going to fly you up for your shrink exam. We're, they didn't call it that. It was yeah. probably much more clinical. And then they said, we're going to fly you up for interviews, which is towards the end before they do your background check. And even during the interview, I kept saying, you know, what's this job? Do you think I'll be good at it? You know, does it rhyme with egret agent A? I was desperate for anything, and they wouldn't tell me anything. And so finally I got in. The first day I went, I accepted the job because I thought, what the hell? I didn't know what I was going to do. And it was kind of like a movie reveal. You know, they tell you where to go. And I went down to the basement of the CIA. Not a lot of cool things happen in the basement anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I knocked on a door. And the women who interviewed me opened the door, opened another door, and said, this is your new world. And it was literally a room full of wigs and mustaches and glasses. And masks. That was in a different room. No, I'm joking. Um, and so literally, I was like, what is this? Yeah. And they described it as the disguise department, which I thought was only in the movies when you see people like rip off their faces. But it's, it, there really is nuance to it. And so I was, as I was joking, saying it's wigs and glasses and mustaches, I think movies do kind of a shitty job at portraying really what it is. The show The Americans does a much better job because it could be something subtle as, you know, you just need a disguise at 3 a.m. in the morning in the Middle East, and I'm a woman driving, and I can't be a woman driving in the Middle East. So what, how am I going to disguise me to look like a male? Or 
you know, you shouldn't have brown hair in a place that needs, that's all blondes. What are we going to do to change that? Maybe we'll give you facial hair. Maybe we'll do this, this, and this. And so there's a little bit, there's a little more nuance there. So do the people who work in that yes. division, Yes. are they actually coming up with the, the ideas based on the people who are the officers who are out yes. in the field? Yes. As opposed to just being told, this is what we need. You're actually integrated you're, with absolutely. operations. Absolutely. You're, you're, there's a phrase that you hear in the CIA all the time, which drove me crazy, and it's called, it depends. <laughs> and they're always like, you ask a question, they go, oh, it depends. And it's sort of like when your parents would say, just because, yeah. and it would drive you absolutely apeshit, but it just just what it was. And so everything was different. So you would meet with an operations officer, a case officer, and they would say, hey, I'm going to X country, I'm meeting this person, or I'm meeting this person for the first time, and I don't know if they're if they're good or they're a dangle and I, this is what I need. And you lit, you have that conversation because one, one disguise that works for you is not going to work for you. And so you really have, it's a much more but sort you, of holistic approach. You didn't know anything about this I when know. you got there. So did you have to go to like the farm? Did they, did, did well, they, how do they train you for so this? So they give you training and it, at the CIA, I, it's one of those jobs that anything you do there, you have to have CIA training because you can't go to college and say, yeah. I want to be a CIA spy. Everything has to be very specific to the agency. And so they gave you training on, you know, how to, how to cut a wig and how to curl a mustache and how to adhere a beard to skin. So some of it was sort of like theater. I mean, my joke was like, you don't want me to do disguises. I was in restoration comedies. No one's going to Iraq in a big powdered wig and a corset. Like, <laughs> don't. Did, did you come up with some of those? I, I did, and they said this? it's a little dramatic <laughs> for that officer to go to Moscow in that. Right. I was like, what about the hairy mole? Yeah. They said, no. Yeah. Um, and so they give you training. And for me, though, it still was a stretch. I was a little bit bored because it yeah. wasn't. It wasn't what I thought I would do, and it just required a different skill so set. So you become a spy yourself? Sort of, exactly. Somebody... What, were you a spy? I was. I was okay. a spy. We call them operations officers or case officers. And the reason well, people... Will not always, agents, you don't right? Come agents, you don't, you don't call them agents because those spies. are the people that you, that you recruit. recruit, right? So operations officers in typical CIA fashion, we don't actually do the spying. You recruit a spy. Right, right. We outsource. Right. Okay, so... I got recruited to do that because a case officer who I kept seeing giving disguises, he said, hey, let's do coffee. And we did. And he said, I think you look bored. And I said, why do you think that? And he said, because I've been watching you disguise yourself as Gilda Radner. <laughs> and I said, I can see how that could lead you to believe yeah. that I was bored. And so he... In some ways, you don't really have to disguise yourself. Yeah, I know. It was pretty natural. <laughs> you do have the Gilda Radner hair. I do kind of have her hair. And <laughs> Which she is was, a great thing, oh, by the way. She's... God bless your soul. So I, What's all this about CIA spy girl? <laughs> yeah. um, all, right, so, well, all right, so you become a spy, yes. and what do you do? I go to the farm. Right. And you, well, so the farm is, just yeah. for people who the don't know. The farm is basically spy school. Right. I had a, a, a weird trajectory to even the farm, and none of my career was how most people do, the, do a CIA career. Most people have wanted to do it since they were in the womb. I fell into it. I got into disguise. And most people don't go from the DST, and that's Director of Science and Technology, that's where the disguise department lives, right. to the DO, and that's the Director of Operations. This gentleman who said, I think you'd be good at that, also recruited me to go on an assignment before I went to the farm, which at the time I was so miserable in disguises, I said yes to anything. He said, I think you'd be great at this job. I'm like, I'm in. He goes, listen to it. It's in a war zone. I'm like, it's better than wigs and mustaches. And he said, no, seriously, I want to tell you about this job. And I said, literally, I'm so bored. I'll do anything. And so it was sort of, he threw me in. He knew for some reason he had faith that I could do this. We got special approvals. I did that. I really enjoyed it. I felt like, ah, 
this is something I could do. It felt like method acting, to be honest, because I was an alias. I was having to play a role, and I really enjoyed it. My tour kept getting extended and extended. Finally, I went back, and they said, well, now that you've done the job, you should go to the farm, and we can teach you how to do the job you just did. And I did, and you go to spy school, and they teach you all the spy sort of skills and tradecraft that you see in the movies. All right, so did you have any um, successes as a uh, undercover officer? I in did. The, uh, did you recruit any uh, spies you, you for do. the United States? Yes. Steal secrets yes. that helped our national security? Yes. Tell us about that. I can't tell you everything or else I have to kill you, well, because that's right. what we say. But I will say yes. um, one thing I thought was kind of fun and cool mm -hmm. related back to my story is I had gone on this big project, this big operation, and then came back and went to the farm and ended up having to go back out while I was in training. And there was a big, basically the DDO was the end of the director of operations was giving a speech to the whole directorate. And you could ask questions of sort of this open house sort of forum. And he said, hey, somebody said, I feel like the, D the DO is really risk adverse now. What are you gonna say about this? <laughs> and he said, I'll tell you, we have a student at the farm who I just sent overseas to a war zone. I don't think we're so risk adverse. And then I got, when I came back, everyone was saying, the DDO mentioned you. I'm like, he said my name. They said, well, no, they didn't say your name. I was like, oh, well, that's not nearly as cool anymore. But I thought it was pretty great that- When was this? It was, I don't know what? if I can say the well, years. Well, just a- In, Early 2000s? Yes, yes. So yes. post 9-11? Uh, right before 9-11. Well, that's, uh, that's really fascinating because that's what the whole debate was. Like right after 9-11, everyone was talking about how the CIA was risk averse. Exactly. And that they needed to be more, more forward leaning to prevent the next terrorist attack. So, so you were the you were, spear of I was, the forward leaning push. I was the, the tip C of the spear. Yes. So <laughs> now, um, can you talk about at all about what your covers were? No. And can you talk about where you were, no. not even region? Do you know what's weird? As I didn't realize, as some people can, and the only reason I say no, and I'm not trying to be like quippy about mm -hmm. it, is when you write anything for the CIA up into perpetuity, you have to send it to the right. Publication Review Board, which is at the CIA, right. and you email it, and it's very mother may I. Yeah. And I wrote in a couple pieces where I was, and they redacted it. And sometimes it's a very arbitrary redaction. One time they redacted some names, and I had to go back and say, I made up those names, so you redacted fake names. Do you want me to make up more <laughs> fake names, or like, how do how do we do this? Yeah. But they've always redacted that when I've had it in, so I'm just very sensitive, so I never say it, because if it's redacted a couple of times, I just never want, I don't well, know if there's a good it's reason. It's hard to imagine why like the country that you were in would have to be redacted, because presumably the country is publicly unknown. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't do it. Existence. I would say it, but I just, yeah. I'm very sensitive because they've right. also been you, very kind to you me. play by the rules. Yeah, you submit your podcast for no. the CIA pre-publication review to listen to, to. Well, I don't know why not. It because would seem I'm not, like it's going to a public audience, so what's the difference? The difference is, A, it's not a written word, and B, it's an interview, and you can... It's different. And I also right. not talking about operations in my podcast. I'm talking to people like John Cryer and Alyssa Milano. And we're not talking right. about operations. We're talking about social activism. We're talking about Trump. We're talking about politics. Although okay. you just did a podcast about sex in the CIA. It was great. So um, but what I did. I would think that they would want to hear about well, that. 
They would, but what we talked about was information that's we already been. We certainly want to hear about you it. You should definitely hear about it. It's really okay. good. Right. So let's well let's tell, tell us. Okay, about so it, it was it was fantastic. Tease it. So I'll tease it. That sounds really punny. Um, anyway, <laughs> I'll tease it. Yeah. Uh, what was interesting? The reason we could talk about it is we were talking about information that's already been publicly disclosed. So when we talked to acronyms, it was acronyms that were already out there. If we talked about the farm, people know what the farm is. So right. we knew that we were playing within the rules of sort of the game. And what happened was I had written an article years ago for Marie Claire about sex in the CIA, and I got that cleared by the CIA. Because everyone always asks questions about that. They're always fascinated. And I think for women, it's really hard because there's a big double standard. No male officer I've ever met has been asked the same questions that women get asked. I get asked two questions all the time. One is, how many people did you kill? Not, did you kill anybody? There's just this assumption that I've killed many, many people. And I I usually say, have you seen my car? You would probably not think I have the best shot. (laughs) And then they always say, how many people did you sleep with? Not have you or did you? How many? Because there's that assumption. A, it's a government job, so come on, people. But B, that's the general assumption. I don't know one male officer has ever asked that. And they mean that as part of your part of your job trade craft. Exactly. That right. that's what you're as opposed do. to uh, uh, sex within the CIA, it's, which, which is, is a, which is a thing, which right? is a <laughs> huge thing. Oh, it's like a big old cesspool. <laughs> it is. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let's go. Let's come talk on. about we'll that. We'll talk about that. So okay. yeah. my sex in CIA. So I. I was tweeting about it, and someone said, you should do a podcast about it. I thought, does anyone really care? And I tweeted, and I was like, anybody care right, about this? Let me this? just say. They said they if did. You, put, I, you know, we worked at, at news magazines. We, knew, we know something about what sells in headlines. If you yes. put sex and spies in a headline, it that's, sells. that's going to sell. Yeah, okay? it was, it was <laughs> overwhelmingly <laughs> popular. Yeah. It was a lot of yes responses. All right, so what did you talk so about we in talked this? About, yeah. What we talked about is I wanted to yeah. Yeah. Uh, break down some of the myths. I had one of my old bosses on, which I thought was really fun because he used to intimidate me. And then I was DMing him saying, hey, I know you used to intimidate me. Now I need to hear all of your sex stories. John Seifer, John who was Seifer. head of Russia operations. Yes, he uh, was. Deputy chief of Russia operations. So Great. I think we've already gotten a clue hey. as to where you might have been, but go <laughs> well, ahead. He, was, right. he had many different pl- uh, different jobs. <laughs> all right. Um, not so, that, hey, Sherlock. Uh, he was, but he was great. And I had two other officers who I'd met the old-fashioned yeah. way through Twitter. And one thing I wanted to do was talk about why the CIA doesn't use sex. Because I think you watch the Americans, you watch all these shows, and you think, oh, yeah, that's something that we do. But the state, that's sort of, there's some verboten things in the agency, and that's one of them because mm-hmm. it clouds a relationship. You can't have a real relationship if you have sex in it. Because when you recruit an asset, it is a business relationship. You're recruiting someone to provide information to the U.S., and you're always keeping that a very business relationship. You bring sex in, it clouds it, you don't have any control. So the honey trap is not a thing? It's, a tr- it's an absolute thing for yeah. other agencies. Right. It is absolutely not a thing. People get fired, their careers are ruined, they're sent back to headquarters, hands are slapped. Do you think that the Chinese or the Israelis play by the no, same I rules? No, I don't. Absolutely not. So why would the CIA uh, have these puritanical uh, restrictions when uh, all the adversary Can you uh, imagine spy though our agencies con- don't. Because what would you think about our country if we said, hey, one of the job requirements for being patriotic and giving back is that you have to go fuck somebody for the country. It'd be horrible. Well, you know, there are lots of sacrifices that people make for the country. And, <laughs> really? You know, if, if Come on. It, it takes to get Come the secrets on. that we need to know. Um, that would never happen. Yeah. And if you think about I mean, truly, I, we're, being, we're being light, but that's one of the reasons. It's because 
we would never ask that of somebody. And certain countries, they would ask we, that of we, people. We ask them we ask to li- kill. We ask we them ask to kill. To kill, but not to fuck. Correct. Okay. Um, you know, I think people could, you know, um, have you you ask the military to go into combat. Right. You don't ask the CIA. We're not in a traditionally a combat role, mm-hmm. and so you're asking them to steal information. And historically, from OSS days and beyond. We've been able to do that without asking people to compromise their moral principles and saying, in order to get this information, you have to do this. Now, if that's the only way to do it, this isn't a good asset. Because when you're recruiting an asset, you're saying you're spotting them and you're developing them and you're assessing them. So you're finding out what their vulnerabilities are. Their vulnerability isn't sex. No one's like, oh, I'm so sex starved. I'm going to spy on my country if you just have sex with me. It's going to be money. It's going to be ego. It's going to be appreciated. But you're also, you're, you're, I mean, mean, at least in the movies, you're also, and this happens in the Americans all the time, you're, you're in a sense, kind of blackmailing them into into becoming agents. And if you know that they, maybe fool around on the side a lot. That they have um, certain weaknesses. And have weaknesses. Well, you you different. want to encourage that so that then you, yeah. So. A blackmail is different than a weakness. A weakness is something you can exploit. And it's something, if weakness could be they need more money. A weakness could be they feel like they're not appreciated at work. And that's something you can feed as a, as a CIA officer. You can say, I can give you money for information. I can, the information you're giving to our country is so valuable. We're so appreciative. We've now fed your ego. But that's different than blackmail. Once you blackmail somebody, you have no control, and they also now are not grateful to you. They're also feeling resentful. Mm-hmm. They're feeling trapped. Mm-hmm. So their motivation to help you isn't to really help mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. It's to get out of a jam. And you want them to feel like they are a partner with you. All right. To bring this discussion yes. on to a subject that we often talk about yes. uh, on this show, which is the Russia investigation, uh, um, it has was recently revealed that the FBI, in its efforts to, to investigate George Papadopoulos, had he's a, a attractive blonde bombshell informant who yes. went by the alias Azra Turk who That's meets the worst him alias in ever. London and oh. uh, according to Papadopoulos's account was quite aggressive coming on to him uh, trying to get him to spill so, the beans about what he knew about the Trump campaign's relations to Russia. Okay. Now, is that something that the So women, so inmate do? number 57896 gave us information that we're now thinking is true. Yeah. Okay, so what? A, I have a problem believing anything that inmate eight six seven five three oh nine said. Oh, talking about Papadopoulos. Yes, okay. he's in. A, he yeah. is incarcerated. He lied to the FBI. Right. You have a liar who is on record. So I am dubious of any of his claims. Right. Uh, okay, fair enough, but the New York and Times so, did York report Times, that and they are the real. Uh, I FBI can ask, used such an informant. There is something different from putting a beautiful woman in front of a guy to saying, hey, to get the information, I want you to have sex with them. There's a line. There's a division. When yeah. you meet somebody, when you meet somebody in the field and you may recruit them, the first thing that a lot of times you kind of do and you want to do is make sure they know what, where the line is and they know you're not on a date. But it's not to say the initial attraction isn't because, oh, he's cute, she's cute. They're not saying that's verboten, but that's right. inherent to who it is. They could also maybe have assessed that Papadopoulos, inmate 8675309. That's the only song I know that with numbers. That or 24601, and then that's Jean Valjean. And I don't want to sully his name, Jean Valjean. Um, there's a big difference. And I, it sounds like it's semantics, but there yeah. really is a difference. And I think it's really important. And I give the CIA gets slammed all the time. But that's something that they really, really, really do take to heart. We talked a lot about it 
on the podcast, which will be out in a couple of weeks, and I'll plug it. Mm-hmm. But there really is a difference. I mean, and then within that, we also talked about all the stories about when people didn't obey by the rules, and those were all the, the really good, fun, juicy stories that we talked about. Right. Because a lot of people do Well, that. let's talk. Well, yes. you referred to uh, Langley, or yes. CIA headquarters, yes. as a cesspool Yo. of sex. Yes. <laughs> so let's, Did I get your let's, attention? Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you got my attention. Um, so so, what, so what is dating life like uh, at the CIA? It's, what's hard about it is you have to lie all the time. If, especially in director of operations, because Not you're the undercover. the best uh, kind of foundation for relationships. It's hard. No, it, really, it's hard, because most people who work at the agency are over, and they can say, hey, I work at the CIA. But in the director of operations, you can't be. So if you try to date on the outside, immediately when you meet somebody, it's a lie, because they ask you, what's so, the first question is, right. what did you do? Oh, and by the way, what did you tell people when you You can't tell your co- I couldn't tell what my coverage job is. Wait, wait, you, you couldn't tell. I, I could tell them in the moment. I can't right, reveal right, right, what right. it is. But now. you would tell them if you, you were if you were on a date with right. someone. Yes. You would, they'd, they'd say, you "What do you do?" And you, and you, you would say, job. "Right, yeah." And the government. And what kind of was it? Were they? They're boring. Boring jobs. The so reason, that makes you seem boring. So that doesn't actually help. I feel like you're in the CIA. You're getting this like <laughs> literally on the nose. But that's exactly okay. the challenge yeah. because especially if you're young in DC, you're meeting people who are working in Congress and, you know, on the hill and you're all you want to do is try to be impressive and, you know, your job is not, I work in the basement of the Pentagon in the corner office. It's actually a cubicle, it's bunked. Um, I don't know. It's horrible, so you're immediately boring and it's hard to do. Now, I didn't realize you couldn't make up a cover job in the beginning because my cover job was so boring and technical, I didn't understand it. So I told everybody I taught public speaking for the Joint Chiefs of Staff for months. Because mm. I was like, I'm a theater major. Everybody will believe that until somebody said, that's a real job. <laughs> <laughs> Held by a colonel. It is a literal real job so, that you could never, ever have. This so. got, no doubt, to the Pentagon and the colonel who had it and saying, there's an imposter out there. Yeah. She's got curly hair, yeah. not the best driver, but yeah. she says that she has your job. Yeah. So you have that as a big obstacle. So a lot of people date within the agency. But what makes that even more complicated, yes, they know who you are, but a lot of these people have gone to the farm. And when you go to the farm, you literally get the black book on how to be skeezy. You know, you just, you learn how to lie, you learn how to manipulate, you know how to listen to information. So literally, everyone who's dating one another, you're using your powers for evil instead of good because you're sussing somebody out and you're lying to people. And there's a phrase in the CIA that everybody uses that's, don't case officer, case officer. Basically, don't bullshit a bullshitter. Like we see, we see, we see right. you. And so there was a lot of that. There's it, CIA has the highest divorce rate of any government organization really? or agency. Really? Is that an actual? It's an actual statistic? thing. It I is mean, an actual like real yeah. news, actual yeah. statistic. I think it was yeah. in the Washington Post. They did a story about it. It was a few years ago. It was not surprising. To me, there's a lot of divorce at the agency. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that is stress-based because you're, right. A, if you're in a war zone, a lot of times if you get stationed in a war zone, you're separated from your spouse. So now you're working with people in a very tight, tight, tight you know, arena, and they become your family. It's really intense. Your hours are intense. A lot of that intensity 
kind of shift over to romantic relationships. And so a lot of relationships really feel that stress. So you were at the agency during some tumultuous yes. times, uh, post 9-11, but uh, you know, yeah. among the, in the controversy over enhanced interrogation techniques and yes. torture, uh, the um, uh, controversy over the run-up to the war in Iraq, in which the CIA totally blew the call on weapons of mass destruction. Mm-hmm. And, uh, made it was not my you, fault. Was it? it was, it was not, not me. Uh, I was... All right, disguising but of myself. course, you're being a case officer to, to journalists, but go ahead. <laughs> you guys are too good. I would never do that to you, though. Right, right. Um, but were you aware of those at the time, and did you then leave the CIA because you quit in protest, or did you go along with what the agency was up to? I did not. Uh, there was, I had several reasons why I left. It mm-hmm. was a really difficult decision, but ultimately, for me, I fell into the agency. And not to steal John Stewart's line, but when he left The Daily Show, he said, you shouldn't be restless. And that always struck me because I think about it. You shouldn't be restless if you work at the CIA. And even when I was a case officer and doing work that I felt was really important and meaningful, I was restless. I missed performing. I missed acting. I missed being creative. And that part of me, I felt, was atrophying a little bit and a little bit and a little bit until I was just losing what I really enjoyed and my passion. I got to a point in my career where I knew either I stayed forever or I would leave. And so that was the big draw. I had a lot of problems with with, with Iraq and mm-hmm. everything we were doing. So it made it a little bit easier for me to leave. Mm-hmm. When did you leave? Uh, <laughs> what? Just, I mean, I'm just curious how dumb do you, like, I'm just curious. <laughs> Seriously. I thought maybe I could catch her off guard. How long have you guys worked together? Is this like a common, is this like bad cop, good cop? <laughs> You know, and we've actually, you know, conned like, some people into giving please. us stuff that they didn't mean to. All right, so yes. you become, all right, you leave the CIA See, and yes. you become a podcaster. Okay, yes. now uh, you've got two podcasts. I do. I I'm an overachiever. One is called Washington for Beautiful People. All right, um, and then the other is called Unredacted. And now you just did an Unredacted with a special guest of uh. your own, Hillary Clinton. How did that come about? And uh, tell us about how that went. Well, it was honestly, and I, I got very emotional too. I do Washington for Beautiful People. I host by myself, so it's right. my own little baby. And then for Unredacted, I, I want. Guess you don't plan to have either. Of I was going to say. I was gonna say I'm right. totally yeah. going to have. Some. I'm totally going to have you on. I'm going to break you down like you've done this to me. Yeah. You see all this now? It's going to go down. Right. Um, so for Unredacted, I created that. And I wanted to do want something that had a panel because I was really interested in having conversations with people as well as guests. So I have Molly Jungfast as one of my co-hosts, right. who is amazing and hilarious on Twitter. She's a great, very funny, very funny. She's a great yeah. uh, political writer, satir- satirist. Mm-hmm. I can never say yes, that correct. Right, yeah. And thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can leave now. Uh, <laughs> Philippe Rhinus, who has yes. worked for Hillary Clinton for 17 years. Mm-hmm. So I had we had a little bit of an in with Hillary, and he really helped us out before that. I mean, obviously he arranged it to happen but we had talked about the questions we were going to ask and so we knew ahead of time different topics and then we went to her home and we said in Chappaqua no in she has oh, a, a she home in DC she still has the house she's a house in DC, DC. Right. She in DC. Uh, okay yeah and so we sat I mean it was the whole thing was a little surreal to me because mm-hmm. as a woman especially I held her up to such to such esteem and she was mm-hmm. you know she was up there and so I it was amazing to meet somebody who exceeded every expectation you ever wanted. And she was so generous with her time. We were there for talking with her for over 90 minutes. When the podcast was over, we were in the kitchen talking about movies and just 
hanging out. So what did what did you talk about? We talked. We, we did a wide range. Uh, Molly. Molly talked a lot about some of the candidates. I talked a little bit about Me Too. I shared a story. A little of, touchy subject it for was, her. What, but what it? I what I talked about was the fact that after she lost, that's when Me Too started and how she, I think, empowered so many women to use their voice and to come out and talk about it. But how do you talk about Me Too with Hillary Clinton without bringing up her husband? Easily. Yeah. It, it, it didn't. It, it didn't, didn't me, even. Didn't I even didn't honestly cross your mind. No, it really Emily could do that. You could. Yeah. I, well, I think well, uh, do we would why? do that a little. I'll tell you why. Yeah. Um, right. Why it didn't? It didn't even cross my mind because honestly, every woman I've talked to has a Me Too story. Right. And some guy had asked me, "Do they really?" And I said, "Ask any woman, she'll have a Me Too story. Ask her again, she'll have another one. She'll have another one. She'll have another one. It's so common." And after Hillary lost, and after we saw that, after we saw him pounce on her on stage and basically act like a predator. For so many women, it was about seeing that happen and then using our voice to rise up. And I don't mean it in a, in a silly way, but I think that was a very empowering moment that really fueled a lot of the Me Too movement. And I have a very good friend, and I so shared the story. You're talking about on the debate stage? With, on the debate with, stage. With and every Trump Yeah, when he, exactly. When he did, I think he that had helped. that kind of menacing walking around her Where he thing. was like a predator. Yeah, yeah. That helped, I think, also seeing her lose and seeing her lose unfairly and then seeing what he had done to women too. I think it was it was a moment. And so I had shared a story and I'll make this quick. I have a friend who was going through a bad Me Too experience in LA and I didn't know what to do. So I just kept giving her books of really strong women and one was Hillary's book. And she kept texting me saying, can I keep this book longer? I wanna read it again and again. And she kept sending me quotes that inspired her and touched her and gave her power. She, for two years she'd in, been in this experience and never thought anybody heard her. And the first time she thought somebody heard her was Hillary Clinton. And she said it was Hillary's words that got her through this. It was Hillary, Hillary's words that gave her the strength to stand up and to make her fight heard and to make sure that people heard her and believed her. And I would have been remiss if I didn't take a moment and say, Madam Secretary, I need to tell you what you've done. Mm-hmm. You may not be serving there, but you continue to serve. And this is how you've inspired women. So it was really important to know I didn't think for one second about Bill. Well, I All think I, a lot of people would have a very different perspective on that very well, issue. And, you well, know, it's also, uh, she's also not her husband. She's her own woman. Right. So I think that's a problem in society that we continue to do that. We continue to villainize. Yeah, I mean, you can't hold her accountable. She's not accountable you know, for well, her husband. husband is I mean, that she defended her husband and attacked women who came forward with their Me Too stories about her husband and accused them of being part of some right-wing conspiracy what do you, what do you when, expect in a fact, spouse they to have do? legitimate stories but to tell. As a right. spouse right. and as a woman, she got it worse than any man would ever do. And to hold her accountable for somebody else's sins and to continue to do that and then to continue to vilify her because she supported her husband, mm-hmm. I think is really shitty and it's pretty endemic of the problems. I don't mean to take this down a notch. I know we've been really light and fun. <laughs> and you told me to be funny, right, so now right. I feel horrible. No, we're through but, with that no, part. No, no, okay, no, okay. I'm passionate we're, about that because yeah, I think right. it's really, really important. Right. There's such a double standard and I wanted to thank her for it. Right. And I think it's important. All right, does she want to run for president again? You know, I didn't ask her. We didn't ask her. God, what no. did you ask her? I know, we're not journalists. We talked, look, I talked to her about Russia. I talked to her about the Central Intelligence Agency. I talked to her about okay, diversity. Wait a second. But you did ask her about the email scandal, didn't you? <laughs> no. <laughs> no emails? I'll tell you what, I, made a, I did tell her about, I said, what do you what? think about this whole thing with 
I almost Ugh. cursed again with Betsy DeVos. I said this huge double standard. And actually, wait a minute, I take it back. She did talk about her emails quite okay. a bit. Wait a minute, I take okay. it back. She did. I was thinking, I was very right, passionate right. about my she need She apologized. To... She realized no. she blew it. She fucked up. And no. it cost her the presidency. What's wrong? Do you... What? <laughs> Good Lord, I'm going to ask you who you voted for. Good Christ. <laughs> Jesus, you're feisty. No, she, we, she was yeah. very... We actually had a very... I was very in myopic about my me too story at the yeah, time feeling right. very passionate to share with you but yes we did talk about the emails quite a bit we talked mm-hmm. about sort of the hypocrisy sort of mm-hmm. we talked about the hypocrisy that this current administration has when it comes right. to that you know jared's conducting you know foreign affairs through whatsapp you know emoji 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 let's bomb them emoji <laughs> and i was like i'm like which emojis do you use for that oh it's a poop emoji he's an absolute goddamn yeah. moron and so we have that and then we have betsy DeVos who has five personal emails that she's conducting business on so we talked a lot about that we talked Mm -hmm. we asked her who was her least favorite uh person in the cat in the administration and we're like who's your she's something to extend is that it's a you know it's a pot of riches there's so many did you ask her her about comey do we i don't know if we we may have mentioned comey i think we we talked about you know i'm trying to think if we did i don't know if we mentioned comey i I just want to know if she does run for president again, and there are some rumors that she might yeah. get in, would you accept her nomination for you to be CIA director? Oh, my God, absolutely. But it would be the worst decision she's ever made. <laughs> but absolutely, because I would love to have security well, the worst decision after the private email server. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Right. But other than that. All um, right. Anyway. You are so mean. Good <laughs> Lord. I thought you were so nice when I met you. He was like, just come on my podcast. It's going to be no, fun. No, no. I'm going to be funny. That totally he conned was, you. I was right. totally he was, case he, officer. Yeah, he was recruiting All right. you. Was, when can people listen to your podcast sure. uh, with Hillary Clinton? Hillary, it's, you know what? We were going back and forth. We literally taped it yesterday. Right. You should follow me at CIA Spy say, Girl. What's your, what's your Twitter handle? Yeah, follow me at CIA Spy Girl, and you can also follow Unredacted, and mm-hmm. we'll post. We've been tweeting about it. We mm-hmm. tweeted pictures yesterday, and I'm not sure what the date is. We were debating mm-hmm. when to release it with the holiday and all that kind of good, fun stuff, just mm-hmm. to make sure. All and right. everybody listening and watching, just look out for Washington for beautiful people, oh, the right. Isakoff Clydeman edition. <laughs> yes, it's going to be a very special edition. <laughs> is um, it on video or just a podcast? It's just a podcast. Yeah, we've got, we've got faces for podcasts. <laughs> no, you guys are very fancy here. This is very exciting. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, Thank uh, you. Emily, thanks for joining oh, us. Oh, it's so School much Bugger. fun. What Thank a delight. you. Thanks to New York Times financial editor David Enrich and Emily Brandwin, a.k.a. CIA Spy Girl, for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at SkullduggeryPod. Now you can watch the podcast on yahoonews.com YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.